0: Real life is stranger than fiction. This is a reality trip with Ben Fama Jr.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Fama Jr. This is Reality Trip. Thank you for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, First off, a big, big, big shout out to all the backers for our brand new Kickstarter campaign we just launched. Um, We have a a Kickstarter campaign. We're trying to raise $30,000 to finish the editing for our new documentary, A Reason to Believe. And if you want more information about that, there's links in the description below. But first off, just thank you so much. There's been a great, 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 great turnout of people and support and people just going out there not only contributing, but sharing and just talking about it. Uh, thanks to all the blogs that have covered us so far and all the news media outlets. We really do appreciate it. So we still got a ways to go though. We still need to reach our actual goal. So if you can come and donate or contribute anything that you can, a $1, dollar, $25, $100, whatever, anything you can do, you know, head over to our Kickstarter. And uh, if anything, at least get the word out, at least go out there and share it, share it with your friends, share it with your family, whatever we got to do to get this film out there, it'd be much appreciated. So again, thank you guys so much. So one of the people interviewed in my film is my next guest, which I'm really, really excited to have on our show. Uh, He's the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He, uh, he's a monthly columnist for Scientific American you know, he's a speaker, he's an author, he's got books like The Believing Brain, The Moral Arc, and then he just released a, um, a brand new book called Skeptic, Viewing the World with a Rational Eye. So please help me welcome to the show, Michael Shermer. Michael, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. So I'm sure you've heard the, uh, the bad news. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it seems like uh, hundreds of years of scientific inquiry has been completely debunked by a hip-hop artist who says that (laughs) you know the world is flat and you know he's got the means to prove it so you know you're skeptic you're an author you have a you have this new book skeptic viewing the world with a rational eye is this viewing the world with a rational eye
0: uh well (laughs) not exactly. It's you in the world with a, I don't know what a blind eye maybe. Uh, but it's an interesting question when I was uh, interviewed yesterday for a local TV show on this. And, you know, I just got to thinking, do, do people really know how we know the earth is round? I mean, could, could they articulate it in a minute? You know, here's how we know it's round, you know? So I, I, I just went through some of the proofs just, just so people know, I mean, we know, we know because, you know, we grew up knowing it, but, you know, do, do you know that you can uh, look at the shadow of the Earth on the moon in an eclipse and you can see that it's round? uh and you can see pictures from space and the earth is round and of course now the the flat earthers claim well yeah it's round like a pizza but still flat like a pizza right but of course if that were the case then the pictures from space would show the continents all on the on the one side or if they were on you know half of them on the back side of the pizza then the question would be you know how do you get there uh, because, you know, you can fly there, you can sail there, and so on. Anyway, then there's, uh, you know, the higher up you are up in the mountains or up up in, in a plane, you can see more of the curvature looking straight out. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you put uh, two sticks in the ground at, you know, some distance apart, a couple hundred miles, and uh, record the shadow at the same time, you'll see that, you know, it's a slightly different uh, angle of the shadow because the the, the sticks are, are on a curved earth. And, Anyway, and, and you can look at other planets, for example. They're all round; none of them are flat, right? Um, you know, and so on. So, you know, there there actually are ways that we know, <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of good to review that. So, I mean, the the whole thing was kind of idiotic, and maybe it was just a ploy to get attention and media coverage or something for this um, hip hop artist, rap artist. But um, you know, we do have a science rap rapper, and his name is Baba Brinkman. Mm-hmm. And he does really cool science rap. You should have him on your show sometime. He's really, really good. And he's the counter to that. You know, we, can, we can do science rapping uh, as, as a way of educating people about science.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. So, you know, every day I, I'm always seeing something on the news, something being posted, somebody sending me something in my email about something. And I think one of the hardest things for me to explain to people, and I know in our community, we, we understand skepticism, but let's say, for example, there's someone who's religious, spiritual, um, someone who's a conspiracy theorist, even, and they're really trying to understand um, skepticism. How, how would you talk to that person about skepticism?
0: Well, I usually explain that skepticism is um, – it's like a scientific approach to claims, asking for the evidence and the arguments in favor of the claim and always you know, approaching it from the null hypothesis perspective. That is, your hypothesis is very probably not true or it is not true until you prove otherwise and you have to convince us through overwhelming evidence that we can reject the null hypothesis and assume that – the hypothesis is probably true, or at least it hasn't been proven false, technically speaking. And um, you know, so but of course everybody thinks they have evidence, and uh, you know, so it's you have to go further beyond that. But it depends on the particular claim. So I also make the point that it, you, we don't just from the get go say we don't believe things uh, before we even look at them, because it depends on the evidence. Uh, you know, for example, are you a global warming skeptic or are you skeptical of the global warming skeptics, which would, if you're the latter, like me, that makes you a believer in global warming, whatever that means. Um, and so this is a good, a, a good way to come about it, to think about that, uh, we don't just say, well, we don't care what the evidence is. We just don't believe anything because we're curmudgeonly skeptics. That, that is not, not at all the case. We believe all sorts of things, the theory of evolution, the Big Bang theory, the germ theory of disease, plate tectonics. You know, There's lots of theories we believe, but it's because uh, they're, they've been proven uh, over, the, over the decades to, to be uh, well-supported by evidence.
1: You know, we talk about a little, a little bit about this in, in my film when I interviewed you a couple of years ago about belief and, and why it's so hard for people to change their minds. Have you come across any reasons why some people are able to change their minds and why some people aren't? I know I used to be a believer myself, and sometimes I ask myself, how did I get here? Do you see anything that's related to why more people might be more able to change their mind than, say, you know, others?
0: Uh well there's two things first there's variation in all human characteristics height and and intelligence and running speed and all that but of course there's also natural variation in intelligence and and other personality characteristics like openness to experience and and uh introversion extroversion things like that 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 people just vary and Gullibility is one of those characteristics. How gullible or not gullible somebody might be it depends in part on just genetics, their temperament, and how open they are to new ideas. I mean, it's good to be open to new ideas, but not so open-minded that your brains fall out, as they like to say. And um, you know, so uh, and then there's also um, your upbringing and you know what kind of exposure you've had to critically thinking about claims? Uh, I mean, is it, is it in your toolkit? Because most of that, the the kinds of critical thinking skills we talk about are are not, you're not born with those. You you have to learn them. Like science is a learned thing. It takes some practice and training and, and, uh, and so, you know, people vary on that too, just by, by background. And, and then of course there's to what extent your political or religious or ideological beliefs are important to you to the point where they might override uh, contrary evidence, which causes cognitive dissonance to kick in and and leads most people to double down on their beliefs in the teeth of contradictory evidence. And so, um, and and that's going to also vary (laughs) depending on the claim. Like, so, you know, we talk about, you know, Certain people are anti-science or, you know, right-wingers tend to be anti-science. Not really. It it, it depends. They're very supportive of science, most science. It's only certain sciences that seem to bump up against their religious beliefs, say, like creationism uh, or their political ideologies or their economic ideologies and, you know, climate change. Well, it can't – global warming can't be real because if it is, then, you know, it's a a, – you know, it's, it's a plot against capitalism or something. You know that, that's just a, an economic ideologically ideological statement, not, not a statement about science and but, but but that same person may be of course only too happy to go to the doctor to get you know treated for his uh, disease because he completely trusts science in that sense. So it depends on those different factors.
1: I think that's the problem even now with this political climate is it seems like there's a lot of noise coming from both sides, the left and the right. And I wonder how do we break through a lot of this noise to get to some of the rational ways that we can, you know, understand problems. It seems like both sides come up with these really like fantastic, you know, ideas and, and, and sound bites. And some of us are really trying to figure out how do we actually understand the problems that face us? Do you have any any suggestions of how we can cut through a lot of this rhetoric? (laughs)
0: well um we can just join the voices uh, ourselves which we're doing we're doing this right now uh books and and uh, magazine articles and tv shows and radio shows and podcasts and and uh op-ed pieces and and so forth this is all part of the you know the chorus of voices that are out there and we just have to you know in a free society we just have to you know just have just have to hustle and, and, and and counter bad ideas with good ideas and and uh, you know we also uh, skeptics and and humanists tend to be pro-free speech so we don't want to censor people even you know crazy things like Holocaust denial or something like that. And we don't want to censor them. You know, the best thing is just to shine a bright light of, of knowledge on it and show how ridiculous the claims are. And, and that would be the case with, you know, climate change or whatever, you know, whatever the thing that's being debated. Um, and, uh, but of course, you know, we're right now in the middle of the you know, upcoming primaries for the, uh, 2016 election. So, Naturally, there's a lot of noise, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, this, this too will get winnowed down. Part of that is the fact that in order to get media attention and stand out, the various candidates have to make more and more uh, outrageous or outlandish or extreme position statements to try to uh, leverage, you know, the, the media on, on their behalf. And, you know, once it settles down and we have, um, uh, you know, just a smaller number of candidates or even just the two that, that are the nominees uh, for the two parties, then everybody will ratchet back the rhetoric and go back toward the center to get the center votes. And it won't seem quite so crazy.
1: I think that's important, too, because, you know, being a, a, a skeptic myself, I started to kind of question this kind of groupthink mentality. I, I grew up, you know, as a Republican and then I became a Democrat. And now I consider myself to be an independent. And sometimes both sides hate me because I try to bring up, hey, you know, it's not always a black and white thing. So. Um, let's talk a little bit about what people don't understand about skepticism. Sometimes people say, well, you know, you just want to doubt everything. You just want to, you know, just argue with everything. And and what is it you think people don't understand about it?
0: Uh, well, I, first of all, I think they tend to, um, conflate skepticism with cynicism. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure why that that ever happened. It seems to be just the word sounds similar. I don't know what it is, uh, you know, but skeptics are not cynics. You know, we've, you know, we we're in favor of all sorts of really positive things. And, um, you know, so there's that. And then I think people just misunderstand the word in general. It's not just automatically gainsaying anything somebody says. Mm-hmm. It, it's just asking Certain questions, you know, like like that's interesting. How how do you know that's true? Or, you know, uh, you know, I I used to believe that, too. But, you know, I don't anymore. Would you like to know why? Uh, You know, just it's just sort of having a a questioning mind, a curious mind, uh, but also being I think it it helps to be. Uh, open and respectful of other people's beliefs, at at least to get the conversation going Mm -hmm. Uh, and just, you know, say, so tell me more about this. What, you know, how do you, uh, how did you come to, to that belief or what makes you think that's true? Where, you know, that, if you start off saying, I think you're crazy, you know, the wall is probably going to go up. Cognitive dissonance will kick in. Mm-hmm. They'll double down on their beliefs. They, they will no longer even be listening to your arguments. They'll just be listening long enough to uh, counter whatever you're going to say with their next point. And uh, that, that's pretty much the end of the dialogue when that happens.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's really important because there's, I mean, there's times, yes, I'm like pulling my hair out, you know, taking my, you know, blood pressure medication, being like, what is this crap, you know? But then there's times where I'm really trying to actually figure out where you know, somebody's coming from, even with the film that I'm making now. I'm, a lot of people have reached out to me and even said, like, I'm glad that you're sitting down to have a discussion. And I think a lot of times that dis- that, that that discussion kind of gets pulled away, it gets stripped away from all this from this nonsense, even online. It's like trying to have a, a civil discussion at all and anywhere seems almost impossible. So why do you th- I mean, why do you think that is at this point in time? Like do you think that we are getting better at having civil conversations? Do you think that, we as skeptics are doing better to communicate what we're trying to say, or do you think that we're just becoming just as bad as, you know, ideological people out there?
0: Um, w- well, it depends on which skeptics or humanists or whatever you're talking about. I mean, we are, our, our sample size is much larger. Our our cohort has grown quite a bit in the last couple of decades. We are a sizable minority now. I mean, if you, depending on how you want to define it, you know, we're, we're now one out of five at least uh, of the unchurched the people that that tick the box for no religious affiliation, the so called nuns. You know, so in terms of you know, the uh terms of religion that you know that's and, and and it's actually one out of three for millennials people born after 1980 and uh, so that that's pretty encouraging but not everybody is into religion as a thing you know there's other other branches of skepticism and humanism humanism dealing with human rights and civil rights and things like that skepticism dealing with the paranormal you know so it's not not like religion's the only thing but the fact is that that the skeptical movement it, it has really grown quite a bit there's you know our skeptic magazine skeptical inquirer there's but there's a lot of skeptic magazines around the world actually and tons of newsletters and groups and and uh it's it, it's a real market now a real cohort of people and uh, so of course you're going to get extremists on on uh, uh you know, with a larger sample size there's it, when the when the bell curve is larger there's going to be more uh, people on the sixth standard deviations to the left or right of the center so you're going to get more you know weirdos or whatever extremists more angry people or whatever and that you know that, that then that then we get all get lumped with that person or whatever and that's not good but that happens that happens to all groups and, and it's the same thing with uh, some of the purges you know who's the real skeptic or who's the true humanist or you know whatever that that happened back in the 60s to the you know feminist movement who's the real feminist and purging people out of the group and you know that sort of thing makes it uh, yeah, but that's normal you know we just have to get through that stage
1: You know, that's interesting you brought that up too, especially when it comes to feminism. It seems like in the atheist community, that seems like a big topic for a while that everyone was talking about. And, you know, I I guess I can, you know, just like most people, I was very much, you know, supportive of equality for anything. And I guess you could have considered me, I guess, a feminist as a male. But as I started to kind of look into the arguments of what people are trying to say, it seems like what we think about feminism, how we understand what we're trying to say and not, not that we're trying to be bigoted. We're not trying to say that, especially in the atheist community, it seems very male dominated. You know, we do want more women thinkers. How do we address a subject as sensitive as feminism?
0: Yeah, well um, the label is problematic because it's loaded with a lot of political baggage. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, the central points of what the feminist movement is after, you know, by reading people like uh, Carol Tavris, it's one of the great, feminist writers of the, our generation. Uh, I, you know, I agree with her completely, but if you say, are oh, you a feminist? And then you show me pictures of different feminists, like, Ooh, I don't know. Cause you know, this person believes that, and this other person believes this and, you know, and, and that's part of the problem of having a little checklist of things you have to believe to be an X, whether it's feminist, libertarian, you know, skeptic, humanist, or whatever. Um, you know, that makes it harder, but we have to use language, and talk and labels are shortcuts for, you know, long descriptors. So I understand the, that, but, uh, how do you, how do you overcome it? Well, you just, you know, being respectful and talking and, and clarifying points. It's, you know, the social media has made this very difficult. People, uh, they just go crazy on Twitter and Facebook and other sites and, and, uh, the levels of, of just nastiness and crude language and, you know, forum, postings are just embarrassing to read i never read these things it's just terrible mm-hmm. um you know it's just like it's like somebody in a car where they you know flip off another driver because you know they feel safer in their car or something like that it's a little bit like that but it's even worse because you're you know in your in your basement or something with your laptop and you know you're 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 shrouded there and protected so you feel like you can say anything stuff that you would never say to somebody i mean i'll get emails sometimes with people really nasty stuff just mm-hmm. just you know, laced with, with bad language. And, and sometimes I'll write back and say, oh gosh, you know, thanks for the letter, but you know, are you having a bad day? Uh, are you, are you always like this? And, and, and there's, are so surprised that I write back that, oh my God, uh, I never thought I'd hear from you. Uh, gee, I, am sorry. I said all those things and, uh, golly gee. Yeah. Let's talk. So, uh, it, it's like when, when they find out it's a real person, you know, behind the screen that, that, then, then people tend to be Nicer, so I think that helps if you can actually dialogue with people. Just talk to somebody one on one, rather than somebody being a member of a tribe and representing their tribe, and and then putting up the walls and try to break those walls down and just trying to try to find common ground. What is it we're all working toward? And and be try to be tolerant of differences. You know, there's always going to be differences, Um, but you know, I'm I am concerned about you know the sort of moral panic. That uh, people are in, in the last few years, uh, uh, you know, about uh, other people's behavior and, and, and just condemning others before they even know anything about it, and it just seems to be um, something you do to gain social credit. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this about um, you know the sort of social nature of these moral panics and how people feel like. Well, if I, if I show that I'm a true social justice warrior or whatever, uh, then my tribe will see me as more valuable or, or I'll, I'll gain status by condemning these other people over there. And it kind of leads to an arms race of condemnation of others and, and, and often when you don't even know anything about the subject and uh, – you know, it's just uh, it's something we have to watch out for and and I think these these social movements naturally go through those. As I said, the feminist movement and Marxist movements and socialist movements and libertarian movements and uh, you know, I've written about this about Ayn Rand and the objectivist movement, you know, they purged all the in impure objectivists to the point where there was like three people left at, at the funeral of Ayn Rand, you know, the leader of the objectivist movement. And, you know, it's just that's just normal. Uh, and it's, but it's not good. It's the kind of thing we have to watch out
1: for. So, and that's actually a great segue into your your book, uh, the Moral Arc. And one of the things that I have a question is, is: is when it comes to morality, I think that trying to understand it through the eyes of science and reason, and trying to understand arguments that even are still pervading us today, such as uh, you know, if you don't have a if you don't have God in your life, how do you have any? morality. How do you address that question? Cause I, I know that there's still people that don't understand how to even answer that question, much less understand why there's a problem in it.
0: Sure. Yeah. That's a hard one because, um, you know, our culture is so infused with religion. It's like the fish in the water. You can't even imagine you know what it's like without religion until you until you try it and then you realize oh well okay i guess i'm not going to be immoral uh, and, and go uh, you know murdering and pillaging and destroying things if i don't believe in god so one way to do it is is um you know well w- one of my rhetorical techniques is to ask somebody what they would do if it turned out there wasn't a god uh and uh and would they suddenly become become shoplifters and start embezzling from their company or cheating on their spouse or lying to their business partners or, you know, whatever, grand theft, auto, you know, would you do all these things? And, you know, almost everybody says, oh my gosh, no, heavens no. Of course. It. Well, why not? Well, it'd be wrong. Well, why is it wrong? You know, and, and it isn't long before you can get them to articulate a a rational argument for why. You know, you wouldn't want it done to you, the, the golden rule, or or it's disruptive of society, or it, it would it would hurt somebody else and, and you know, I can imagine what it would be like to be them and I wouldn't like that and and so on. I mean you can you can articulate you know the utilitarian argument. If everybody stole then we wouldn't have a civil society and you know there's lots of ways to come at it that way, I think. And 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 actually most people agree with me on this even somebody like denis de souza you know who's a conservative christian who i debate on this subject but he counters to be fair to the other side yeah but, but but all atheists and secularists and even if most of america were atheists they'd still be raised in what is essentially a christian culture that is you know western Civilization has been in, in, under Christendom for centuries, for you know, a thousand years of, of, of pretty deep uh, Christian religion through churches and so on that, that it's infused in the culture. But what has been happening that I track in the moral arc is that, in fact, ever since the end of the Second World War in Europe, for example, rates of religiosity have plummeted. In northern European countries, and yet they haven't gone to hell in a handbasket. In fact, their societies are better than than religious societies, including by most measures, America. You know, and just in terms of um, you know their rates of just take things conservative Christians are concerned about, like rates of teen pregnancy, STD rates, abortion rates, uh, suicide rates, homicide rates you know and uh, these these secular societies that are very low in religiosity have much lower rates of all these social ills compared to America or any other theocracy for that matter and so how is that you know possible now and I make the point: the moral arc it's not that I think religion is the cause of gun violence or, or uh, suicides or whatever. I'm I'm just saying that if you're going to make the argument that religion is a prophylactic against social si- sins and ills, how come it's not working very well here in America, the most religious of all Western nations? And uh, it, it, there, there must be something else going on that has nothing to do with religion. And, And that something else is just the values we uh, have developed over centuries since the enlightenment that all people should be treated equally under the law, that all people are uh, equal in terms of their rights and that no one can be treated as a means to an end but humans are ends in and of themselves and so on. These are all principles from Immanuel Kant and Thomas Jefferson and so forth that we've all inculcated into our minds and even religious people, uh, they, they all agree with these things. They use those arguments, but they call them biblical. They say, oh, I get my morals from the Bible. No, you don't. Show me where in the Bible where it says, you know, people should be treated equally under the law or that men and women, blacks and and, and gays and so on are, are all equal. Where does it say that? In fact, it says the opposite of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they but they back engineer it after they've inculcated all these these moral values and then say, but, but I'm religious. So I'm and religion's always the source of moral value so I must have got it from my holy book but the answer is no you didn't
1: yeah, and see, I always say that if, you know, you want me to change my mind, there's one really quick, easy way God could do it right now. He could take out slavery out of all the Bibles at in this instant, all million of the Bibles out there. He could take out slavery, he could take out his oppression of homosexuals. And I'd be like, you know what? That you know, I don't know if that even would prove that there's a God, but it would definitely make me think, well, maybe there's something to the story than not. But I think my concern in the end is, is that I don't see how religion's gonna solve you know, these critical problems of morality, you know, if we're going to talk about abortion, gun control, I think sitting down and figuring out what the real underlying problem is, I think is essential. And I think that, you know, ideology and belief gets in the way of that. And for me, I don't know if people want to ask the hard questions. It's it's just like we have this topical kind of uh, solution, you know, and we're not getting to the underlying core, for example, you know, with gun control for me, it's like everyone's talking about guns and control. And I'm like, well, what about the underlying mechanisms of why someone feels the need to shoot somebody? You know, why does someone feel the need to walk into a school and kill young kids? Like we're not talking about the real underlying problems for these solutions. And I don't see how religion's going to solve that. So what's, what's your, what's your take when it comes to understanding morality through science and reason?
0: Uh, well, my my take is is that the kinds of arguments that pretty much everybody makes today about why we should be good or why why gays should have the rights to marry just like straights or why women and blacks should have the right to vote you know when this was debated a century ago and so forth the, these the arguments that are made even by uh, Baptist ministers like. Dr. Martin Luther King. They're are actually secular arguments, you know, having using the rights language that was developed in the late 18th century. Uh, the, the, the the rights revolution has gone through two major stages: the late 18th century, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and all the literature all, uh, that built up into the. Um, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and and the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and then after that, the Declarations of the Rights of Woman, uh, and so on. All all these um, uh, these documents and and discussion of rights is all in secular rights language. It, that the arguments are made from the perspective of taking somebody else's position and and trying to convince them that this is the right thing to do, rather than. Uh, religious language, and uh, so even though Dr. King and his speeches—they're laced with a lot of religious tropes and biblical uh, quotes, and 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 so forth—that that isn't the core of his message. The core of his message is pure secular reasoning about rights and 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 why African Americans deserve the same rights as everybody else. And um, and he says. He says so in his own autobiography that his, his major influences were uh, first Enlightenment thinkers, then Gandhi, uh, and then if it was religious, it was the most liberal theologians who were pretty much steeped in rights language. Um, so in The Moral arc, I just track how all that unfolds, how it happened. In, in all the different rights revolutions. Civil rights, uh, you know, that, so the second big revolution happened in the, started in the 18, uh, 1950s and, and we're still undergoing it. Civil rights, women's rights, um, gay rights, animal rights, and, you know, the same-sex marriage thing is a perfect example of, of how this happened and, and you can see how quickly it unfolded and you can see who opposed it. The only opposition were, were uh, um, kind of fundamentalist Christians, uh, uh, Presbyterians, evangelicals, and um and and the the religious people most supportive were really what we would consider you know pretty liberal religions uh, like like um reformed jews and episcopalians and and so forth and and uh so that that shows us that wherever people are getting their religion it really isn't their morals it really isn't from their religion or their Bible. They, they might be getting it from the religion in the sense that in, in the pulpit every week that the minister is giving a sermon about uh, you know, this or that, but he's probably also steeped in rights language and using that kind of language. So they may be getting it from that, but it's in a way how the whole culture shifts over the decades to being more inclusive to the point where someone like a Donald Sterling, the owner of the Clippers, who You know, mouthed off about African-Americans in a very disparaging way in private with his mistress and, you know, his life is ruined and he has to sell his team and so on for this. Well, most old guys back in the 50s, they used to they used to be like him, but they weren't even private about it. You know, they would routinely speak about blacks and Jews and women in ways that would be embarrassing today. So at least socially, conservatives today are more liberal than liberals were in the 1950s by far. Mm -hmm. But they don't even know it. They don't even they they still you know hold to being our conservative values and so on. But their conservative values are very liberal compared to decades ago.
1: So what do you think about also the uh, moral argument for uh, certain types of people in society that do things that I I I don't want to use the word fraudulent. But it's the only word that comes to mind when I think about, like, um, there's this big thing going on now with the the Hollywood medium, this new medium that can talk to the dead. And I had this conversation with somebody online, and I even addressed it as, a, is there a moral argument in saying that, is it, moral, is it moral to take advantage of someone's vulnerabilities for money? I mean, we, we persecute people for fraud all the time, people who manipulate people to get money. Um, what do you think is the difference between that and, uh, a Hollywood medium or the Long Island medium or people like that who take advantage of people's vulnerabilities?
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's different at all. I think it's all fraud. Unfortunately, the law is more forgiving of psychics talking to the dead than it is say the three card Monty scammers on New York city streets. I think those were, I think they're still outlawed. Um, and, uh, you know, the law, lo- the law is kind of funny about this, um, in terms of what constitutes something like a financial scam, if it's, uh, if it's somebody with a pyramid scheme, you know, someone like a Bernie Madoff, uh, all the way to just you know small-time operators, you know, they'll get busted much faster than say you know somebody talking to the dead. Yeah. And you know, how do you prove that they're not talking to the dead? And besides, anybody can talk to the dead. You know, it's getting the dead to talk back that's the hard part. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, you know, so uh, but but in principle, there's no difference. They you know, assuming that I think most of these. Um, uh, the psychics know on some level they're, they're, they're kind of doing a con, you know, unless maybe they've come to convince themselves that, you know, self-deception is pretty powerful. Maybe they really believe they can do this, but my guess is they, they, they have two sets of books <laughs> like, like the mafia or like, you know, people that are running, uh, shady businesses. They have two sets of books, one for the auditors and the IRS and the other for their internal, uh, running of the business and i I think in psychic the mind of psychics i think they have two books you know the 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 the, uh, bookkeeping thing in their head like okay i know i'm kind of scamming things here but i got to make a living Mm -hmm. and then how they justify it externally well You know, I I am helping people after all. And, you know, maybe I do have a little bit of psychic power. You know, I I did get that one thing last week that that even I didn't know how I got it. You know, maybe I do have these special. I've met people like this who think that um, this guy uh, who taught me long ago in the 90s how it's done because he used to do psychic readings for the psychic friends network and he was a magician on the side well really it was a magician that did psychic readings on the side and he kind of justified it by saying well i am helping people it's a kind of a form of therapy and and uh you know that kind of thing and i think i think people go through those kinds of rationalizations uh, but at some level it, it really is a it really is a scam
1: you know, actually, that that kind of brings me to my next point too. There's a there's an article I just read recently, and I know it is in Mirror, but the reason why it brought my attention was, um, the headline was this: uh, "Woman had sex with aliens and gave birth to hybrid babies, and so might you." And I think people send me this, like my friends send me this, for just just to see me get upset and lose my mind. But at first, I was like, "Okay, what is this crazy shit? Why are they sending me this?" But um, what actually drew my attention to it was that, you know, I live in Sedona, Arizona, so there's a fair share of just crazy ideas. Oh, boy, you do? Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a black sheep here. That's why they, you know. <laughs> boy, I'll bet you are. No, I'm totally a black sheep. Um, and when I came here, I wasn't. You know, I was a spiritual person. I was like five or six years ago. But, um, yeah, I'm very well known for my outspoken skepticism. And I do want to say for listeners out there that there are some really good people out here. It's beautiful here. Not everybody here is crazy. You know, I, you know, there's a lot of great businesses here, but um, but there is a fair share. And I think that's why I'm so adamant about speaking out, you know, being here about these ideas. And so it turns out that this newspaper article was about a girl that is here in Sedona. And so I was like, okay, well, who's this girl? You know, obviously it's a small town. Somebody I know has got to know her. And I went online and I decided I'd watch her YouTube video um, about what she's talking about. And I went from kind of being like, what the hell is this? To just really kind of trying to figure out what was going on when she told her story about her being abducted and, and and delivering babies on you know a UFO. It seemed, I mean, she was thoroughly convinced of this story. I mean, it seemed like she was thoroughly, thoroughly convinced. And the question I had, and I was talking with my wife about it is, how do people get to the point where it's so fantastical that they, they, that they have all these details, they have all these, you know, like deep stories about it, knowing, I mean, they got to know this didn't actually happen to them. What's, what's going on? How do they get in that
0: mindset? Yeah, I don't know. It's again, there may be, you know, two sets of books in their mind, the logic type compartments, I call them, uh, you know, just holding two conflicting views separately for whatever the motive is, Um, Mm -hmm. or they're just totally self deceived, or they're just lying to you. You know, we can't discount the fact that people do lie. They do every day. We know the research on this. Now, everybody lies every day about. It, well, 10 to 15% is kind of the the, the amount given, you know, studies on uh, like, um, Dan Ariely studies on, in his book online are really good about this. You know, you give, you give people these Sudoku like puzzles to, to solve and, and then they're paid for the number of correct answers that they get. And, uh, in, and, in one set of conditions, um, they, they do the tasks and then they shred the answer sheet uh, in the room and then go out and tell the experimenter how many they got right. Then they're paid like a dollar a correct answer or something. Um, so obviously you could just make up whatever you want. And then the other condition is where they do the puzzles and then the person, the experimenter just sits there and counts them up and they know that they're going to be checked. Um, and so uh, to how much did the people in the first condition exaggerate the number they got right? And the answer is about 10 to 15 percent. <laughs> In other words, they didn't just go up and say, "I got them all right. Now pay me my hundred dollars or whatever." They didn't. They didn't lie by like a hundred percent. Yeah and and so Dan's theory about this is that. Uh, you can get away with a certain amount of deception. You know, we're kind of forgiving of people exaggerating a little bit, like maybe on your resume you exa- exaggerate your grades a tiny bit or, or on a dating site you exaggerate just a little bit how tall you are, how much money you make or what your weight is. Um, in this case, you'd, you'd unexaggerate it, I guess, uh, just enough that you know it seems plausible. But if you exaggerate too much, you're going to get busted. So this is the idea behind deception, and um, and so it could be that I think maybe these people, to a certain extent, start to exaggerate a bit, then come to believe it a little bit, and that reinforces it. And in the case of psychics, you know, like talking to the dead or doing astrological readings or whatever, with practice you get better at it. And then the people you're doing it for are going to be more impressed, and they're going to give you more positive feedback about how well you're doing, which which gives you more confidence that hey, maybe I actually can do this, which which makes you even better at it. When I say better, I mean just you know the dialogue is, is smoother, you have more more things to say in your. In your armory, you have more stuff to bring out of little clever things to do, say, in a cold reading, for example. There's books on on cold reading, how to do it. There's hundreds and hundreds of things you can say that tend to be true for most people. Uh, Ian Rowland has a book on this, um, and uh, and but but it takes a while to to memorize them all and remember them and, and think on your feet quickly and practice. I think uh, it helps a lot here. And so, you know, I think you have all those factors at work there um, in these, these kinds of people.
1: There's a great book that's out there, too. Um, I met this gentleman at a skeptics conference out here in Flagstaff. I can't remember his first name. His last name is Edwards. He he actually wrote a book about cold reading. I guess he pretended yeah, to be... Yeah yeah okay so that that's that's what it brings to mind when um you know my wife brought up a good question too about that um about when do we actually end up drawing a line when it comes to just saying okay well this is silliness this is whatever and then having an actual genuine concern for someone's mental health and well-being and the reason why I bring this up is I'm I'm a very I'm an advocate for mental illness and it's easy for me to be like, Hey, these people are stupid. This is crazy. But I've also tend to notice that when I talk to people sometimes genuinely that they may suffer from some underlying emotional problems, maybe emotional abuse, physical abuse, or something like that. How do we not put ourselves in a position where we are generally like, we don't want to, we don't want to push people into a corner, but try to understand them empathetically and try to figure out what their mindset is. How, how can we be better at that?
0: Well, um, First of all, if you are an advocate for mental health, then of course, you you'd have to be skeptical and critical of these psychics because they're not trained to help people. Yeah. Um, and uh, this friend of mine I was telling you about is that that is it's Mark Edwards. That's who I'm talking about. And uh, he he would tell me that you know people would call, mostly call nights and weekends, and they're lonely. They want somebody to talk to. And. Uh, You know, okay. well, that's what good friends are for. You know, they're good listeners and they're empathetic and sympathetic. And uh, but a stranger on the phone and, uh, you know, at four ninety five a minute, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, at least go to a trained psychotherapist to whatever extent they're effective. Um, At least you have somebody who's a professional at it. So to that extent, you know, if we we want to look at it that way, we should definitely be working to do something about that as a problem. Um, but in terms of, well, I'm not quite sure what you were asking there of, you
1: know, how, how we help who, well, how, how can we better understand people when they tell us sometimes these fantastical stories? Cause I tend to notice even oh. in Sedona, you know, a lot oh. of people come here and, uh, you know, I, at first I was just like, Hey, th- you guys are crazy, whatever else. But I, I have met a lot of people that I, I think do have a serious underlying, um, mental disorder mental them illness them
0: yeah, absolutely some of them might, may be truly hallucinating uh, they may be schizophrenic or have a psychotic break or they may just have super um, you know fantasy prone personalities where they you know they just hear and see stuff they're not technically crazy i mean they can still hold a job and be in a relationship and and, and go shopping and just do normal stuff but but they still have these fantastic experiences, uh, or it may just be one-off events. Um, you know, like, um, even Alexander's proof of heaven story about, you know, being in a coma, Mm -hmm. um, and, and having this fantastic trip to heaven. Well, you know, to me, when I read his trip, it sounds indistinguishable from, um, stuff I've read by, um, Sam Harris and, and his "Waking Up" book, where he talks about, opening pages. He talks about taking acid and what what it was like. Or Oliver Sacks' um, books about his own acid trips. You know, to me, it's, it all sounds like acid trips. Mm. Um, and uh, so, it could be something like that. They just have they had a psychotic break, or they've just had a, an anomalous psychological experience. And and the most we can do is just try to be understanding and. And, and and I do that just by asking questions and 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 asking and talking to them and and not not being too critical because I tend to err on the side of assuming somebody's not just completely making stuff up just to sell books or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there are there are plenty of those. I know. And, uh, you know, it's just the way it goes, but, uh, but most of the people I, I have met that, that are psychics, astrologers, or you know, they think they were abducted by aliens. I think they, they really did have an experience. Sleep paralysis, perhaps, you know, lucid dream. They wake up in the middle of the night, sense presence in the room. They think it's an alien. You know, I, I don't think they're just making that up, but you know, there seems to be enough people that have had these experiences that that, that probably is a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, Then I just try to walk them back from the extraterrestrial explanation and and try to understand the sleep paralysis explanation, you know, by saying something like, well, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, You know, I've been reading articles about lots of people have had these experiences and we now know what they are. There's it's a kind of a sleep disorder called sleep paralysis. You know what? and uh you know just try to you know, but, no but mine was different it's like well actually they're all different you know everyone is you everyone has a unique brain so their experiences are going to be unique but there's certain patterns that come up over and over that are very similar um and 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 that's a product of the fact that our brains are wired up in similar ways
1: right and even for people that don't have you know crazy hallucinations. I know there's people that um, they're trying to solve problems. And, and, you know, I I was watching a a video here from this organization that was talking about God. And, you know, I can tell that some of the people that were making their speeches in this video, you know, they were saying, you know, when I was younger, you know, people abused me. uh, I was neglected. You know, I, I tend to find a lot of people have a lot of emotional underpinnings, even if they're not, you know, crazy, hallucinating, whatever, that, they turn to God. They turn to spiritualism, and and I, I, they turn to the psychics and stuff. Here, I think that's my main concern. And how do we not uh, be so critical that we push them away and getting them to understand maybe the errors in their thinking? Does that make sense?
0: Yep, absolutely. Um, well, so yeah, it starts with what it starts with looking at what it is they're getting out of it. Uh, I mean, what what is it fi- fi- fulfilling? Some need, uh, emotional need, psychological need, social need. Are they lonely? Are they depressed? are they broke? You know, I mean, usually there's something driving it. Mm. Sometimes it's just curiosity about, it, uh, you know, the meaning of life or something like that. Everybody thinks about those big questions. And, you know, the, the question is when you're interacting with somebody, what's their motive? That's, that's what I look, look for. Like what, what is it that's driving this person to join this religion or culture or, you know, whatever, or if you're in Sedona to go sit and sit out there in the middle of nowhere under the stars under one of those energy vortexes. Do they still have those
1: there? Energy? Yeah, no, I, oh man, I'm hated in this town for that one. Cause I got into a big debate online with, with a bunch of people here. You know, I was just trying to explain that there's no evidence to support it. You know, I've been here for a while. I've gone out, I've done everything I could. I don't know what else I can do other than I'm not a researcher. And I'll tell you what, I got my ass handed to me with these people. They're like, you're not looking at the evidence correctly. You're not bubble. Blah, blah. And that's like, Man, you know, every claim that people have made here about UFOs, about vortex. And I think that's, ironically, me coming to Sedona changed my mind more than anything. All these claims people said about things being here. When I went out to go look for this evidence, it it just wasn't here. I mean, I was already on my way out the door. I was pretty much, you know, already becoming a skeptic and, you know, losing my belief, I guess. But definitely being here, you definitely, you know, you question. You're like, well, wait a minute. Well, how come everyone else is seeing UFOs and I'm not seeing UFOs? And how come there's no evidence for the vortex? Like, you. Why, I always tell people when they come to Sedona, ask people where is a vortex. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. No one actually knows where the vortex is. So, but I also have a lot of good friends here. You know, I met a lot of really good people. We have family members that we know that maybe believe irrational things. And for me, you know, we still care and we love these people. And I'm always trying to uh, create the dialogue that's saying that sometimes we need to have a a much more even rational discussion with them because not everybody's trying to be crazy. and, And we don't want to lose all of our relationships because somebody thinks different than us. And so that's what I'm trying to address when it comes to, you know, the psychological needs and how do we talk to them in a way that it shows that we actually do understand.
0: Yeah, yeah. So do they? But I thought there were, were areas outside of Sedona you could go where they go. Well, there's the vortex right there, and the, the stones are in a little circle around it, or something oh, like yeah. that. Yeah.
1: No. It's it no. It, it's funny because you ask one person one thing, they'll say it's over here. They'll say, oh, it's the it's the wrapping around of the trees and this stone. But no one really actually know. That's the whole thing. And and I see. You know. <laughs> so there there. It's just this mythology. And in fact, the the interesting thing about Sedona is that it 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 wasn't always a spiritual place. It didn't always have these vortexes. It didn't happen until the 1970s or 80s when um, some people came in. uh, There's a lady, I don't remember exactly her name, but she's the one that created the story because a lot of people come here from Phoenix and they say, oh, this was just a fishing town. You know what I mean? And then they used to shoot movies like Westerns a long time ago, but it wasn't always that way. And the one thing I ask this community sometimes is like, well, are you guys aware that this wasn't always a spiritual capital of the world? I mean, everybody comes here, Deepak Chopra, you know, all the, all the psychics, all the meat, they all come here, but it wasn't always that way, but not that many people uh, know that about this place, you know? So getting people to question things is is hard. And I, I become very unpopular because of that here. I mean, I, like I said, I have some really great friends here though, too. I don't want to paint a bad picture. I think you guys should come out and visit, but um, it's just really it's really difficult. You know, it's me and my wife are, are definitely the black sheep here and it's difficult to just talk to people, but every once in a while we get a conversation with somebody and they'll open up about, you know, what it is they, we believe, what they believe. And we just try to question them. I think that's why in my film, I try to just question people. I have people from the opposite side of what I believe in the film just to talk to them. I'm like, look, I'm not trying to say you're dumb or stupid, or whatever. I just want to understand where you're coming from and maybe you know, think about what your thought process is. So. Yeah you know.
0: Yep, well that's about all you can do. I have noticed that the um uh the sort of new age energy centers of the world are always in really beautiful vacation spots. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sedona, Hawaii, Machu Picchu, you know, just kind of really cool places that, you know, geologically speaking, there's nothing special about them other than they, you know, they, they are beautiful. So now, I've been to Sedona a number of times and and it is a gorgeous place. It uh, really it's, is. It's it really a nice is. place and it's,
1: it's high altitude, what is it, about 5,000 feet there or something like that? Yeah, between four four and five, somewhere on there. I don't know, my wife knows yeah. more, but yeah. Yeah. No, it it really is beautiful. And I try to tell people, Hey, look, I mean, not everybody hears that way. I know there's this perception about Sedona, but there's a lot of great art and culture and, you know, just really good people. And I think that's why I speak out so much, you know, and, and saying like, can we put on a better I know a lot of people want to move away from kind of this, the, the woo, woo I guess is what you call it. And I think that's what makes my film or just me different than maybe most atheist films, you know, like religious, even though I love religious is, you know, God was easy for me to give up, but spirituality, psychic stuff, that was a little bit harder.
0: Well, uh, you know, in terms of like surveys on what scientists believe, you know, most of them are, you know, the majority are, are atheists, but, but a, a non-trivial number believe in God and another non-trivial number, but. Eighteen percent believe in some kind of higher power, Uh, and you know it could be a Deistic type god, a Spinoza type god, or you know a Deepak Chopra type god. Uh, That's why I always caution uh, you know atheists when they they like to cite this number that I cited at the beginning of our conversation about the nuns, the rise of the nuns. One out of five, you know, have no religious affiliation. One out of three millennials have no religious affiliation, but that doesn't mean they're atheists or agnostics or skeptics. You know, they a lot of them are into the the kind of quantum consciousness, the you know, deepak uh, force, spirit in the sky kind of thing, right. it, it, which really still taps in the same emotional need of there's somebody or something out there that knows we're here and cares about us. Right. That, that's really what is behind uh, you know religion. That that this is not all there is. There's something else, and even if you don't believe in um, you know, heaven and the resurrection and all that stuff, you know, there's, there's still plenty of, um, ideas you could turn to that feel just as good, you know, like, you know, Deepak's ideas, uh, you know, where do you go when you die? Well, you, you just return to the conscious state in the universe of consciousness that you were before you were born. Mm -hmm. In other words, there is no such thing as birth or death. It's all a a continuum. And, you know, I, when he says this to I've been in audiences with him, you know, the people just eat this up. They love it. it it's, it feels just as good as saying, you get to go to heaven and be with sweet baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of, same kind of emotional fulfillment there that's being met.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what people don't talk about very often is that emotional, the emotional reasoning and how it, you know, it supersedes our logical our logical thinking. You know, I, I don't, I don't see too many conversations about that. I'm sure they're there, but most of the time we're not really talking about the emotional reasoning of why people are really doing getting to that, that underlying core. And I don't know if that's even what's missing in the atheist and skeptic community. Cause I think a lot of times people turn to these uh, groups because they do find that emotional connection there. The, the question is, is that are we addressing the needs of these people emotionally.
0: Right. And, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. There's, there's not one answer. There's, you know, lots of answers. And, uh, for, for me personally, I'm not into meditation. I don't like the, um, uh, the the sort of humanist church type meetings that they have, you know, Sunday assemblies and, Mm -hmm. Uh and, uh, the Unitarian Universalist type churches. Uh, I mean, a lot of people get a lot out of that. They're most of them are atheists or they don't believe, you know, they're deists or whatever. And, and, uh, and, and that does seem to fulfill a need that a lot of people have, but, but there's, I think there's a lot of people like me, not a lot. I mean, we're a minority, but, but it's a non-trivial minority who just would rather sleep in on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, it was a Dorothy Parker said, uh, something about, uh, why she's not religious. Cause she's I'm too fucking, uh, why if she doesn't go to church on Sunday. I'm too fucking busy and, and vice versa. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of messed that up, but you got the, you got the gist. Uh, you know, there's a lot of us that just don't get anything from religion and the lighting of candles or the singing of hymns, the, uh, you know, the music and, and, and the camaraderie. I, I don't really feel a need for that. Uh, but you know, the secular type, churches they they do that and there's a lot of people that like that and so that's one answer is you know we create our own secular church as it were and that's what a lot of humanists do that and and you know they have wedding ceremonies secular wedding ceremonies Mm -hmm. funerals and so on and i think that's great
1: yeah because community is is definitely what's important in the end that's that's what we are we're social creatures and we, we just we want to be around people that are, you know, that think like us, that act like us. And I, I think that is hard sometimes when you're when you're a free thinker and you're out there asking questions. It, it can sometimes feel very lonely for some people. And I get that, yep. you know, so yep. it's yep. important. We, we come together as a community and, you know, so maybe we could finish up with uh, just a couple questions. I got two questions here from some of my backers from my Kickstarter campaign. Um, okay. Uh, this one's from Hector Hugo. I think it's Pena or Pena. I I hope I didn't mess that up, but obviously I did. Uh, It's actually a question about love. He says, it is hard to love someone who is proud of engaging in supernatural nonsense of any kind, not because they disagree with us, but because we all want something intelligent. How can we educate our effectively other half about skepticism without hurting them? (laughs)
0: well oh boy yes to keep the peace at home (laughs) domestic tranquility uh is important and being respectful of your partner uh is you know is part of being in a loving relationship that works and uh darwin had to face this with his wife emma who Mm -hmm. was very religious and he grew ever less religious as he got older and to the point where he didn't really believe in god anymore toward probably the last third of his life but he, he pretty much kept quiet about it. it's why he never wrote publicly about religion because uh, it would hurt his wife and her feelings and she really loved him and was looking forward to spending eternity with him and the idea that there might not be an eternity would have been devastating to her so darwin kept quiet about that and you know you have to respect that um you know, that's, that's just, uh, that's part of what it means to be in a, in a relationship. And, you know, of course all of them are different, you know, I don't, you know, it just, just depends what the circumstances are. Um, so, but I'm not exactly a marriage counselor, so.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's also important in families too. Cause you know, I'm the only atheist in my family and you know i mean we debate religion obviously but i there's a point where i i, I don't push too far if i don't have to either cuz i don't want to destroy my my family life but they get what it is i'm doing so they they're not like totally bad about it but you know it, it it's a tricky balance it really is but you know trying to speak your mind trying to you know speak truth but then you know, you're like, well, there's more to us than just, you know, atheism or even politics. And, and I do think that's true. I think we live in these bubbles in our camps that we're like, oh, we can't talk to this person. We can't associate with this person. I think that's bullshit. You know, I got friends of mine that are totally opposite of everything that I believe and think and do. And, and they're still good people. And we, and we shouldn't lose that, that, that value, <laughs> well, that connection.
0: Sure. Yeah. If you, if you don't want to be, if you're not going to be friends with anybody that disagrees with you uh, about anything, then you're not going to have any friends. So, right. Right.
1: All right. Let's talk, let's take one from, uh, Ricardo Borba. He says, uh, if smart people believe stupid things for non-smart reasons, uh, shouldn't they be ideal candidates for the Socratic treatment? If they're really smart, shouldn't they become suspicious yes, of their absolutely.
0: own? Yep, absolutely. And I try to, I try to use that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the Socratic method is quite good. Uh, Pete Pagosian is really good at this. Uh, he, he has his whole street epistemology program that, mm-hmm. uh, that deals with how to talk to people on the street, just, you know, and talk them out of it. But and, but it has to do with the Socratic method. You just ask a lot of questions and you lead them along, you know, respectfully and you let them get there. You know, they really do need to get there on their own or they're not going to believe it, you know, really believe it. They might just be saying something.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I got a chance to interview him for this film too, for that exact reason. In fact, that's, that's what I kind of loosely was trying to do when I talked to people from um, different points of view. Um, I mean, some of the people that have the opposite point of view are people I personally know, but I just sat down and was just asking questions and they knew that's what I was doing. I was like, I'm not going to make you look stupid. I'm not here to say whatever. I just wanted to use kind of that street epistemology and try to figure out, well, where are you coming from? What, what is the process and try to understand beliefs. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: excellent. Well, I think that's about it. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. If, if people want to find out more about your books and more about you, where, where can they go?
0: Uh, skeptic.com, michaelshermer.com. Those are the two best ones. Uh, there's a webpage for my book, The Moral Arc. It's moralarc.org. Uh, but that's, you know, if you just Google my name, you'll get all that stuff.
1: Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Summer, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You've been
0: listening to Reality Trip with Ben Farmer Jr. Check out more great content by visiting benfarmerjr.com.